Sex Communication, a podcast of explicit audio and frank conversation. How do we talk about sex? How do we communicate during sex? Well, if you're here now, then you're going to find out. My name is Brianne McGuire, and each week I share an uncensored peek into the things we don't discuss. Sex. 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 I can't say the word sex. Sexy, sexy, sex stuff. Sex. Hello and welcome to episode 118. Today is the fourth episode in our five-show series produced in collaboration with the Black Sex Worker Collective. As previously mentioned, on July 22nd, they will host a 22-hour fundraiser to support sex workers and other freelance artists directly impacted by COVID-19. Starting with episode 115, each weekly episode up until the event will feature some of the many performers and activists who are scheduled. You can catch up on this series and all of our episodes at any time on sexcompod.com. The stigma of sex affects many things, and the treatment of sex workers is but one example. Sex workers face discrimination, prosecution, and an absence of basic labor rights. As we approach the close of this series, I hope these interviews have created awareness and inspired not only compassion, but supportive action as well. Today's interview is with Antonia Crane and A.M. Davies, two members of Soldiers of Pole, a stripper union movement. During the July 22nd fundraiser, Soldiers of Pole will host Strippers Unite, a performance and Q&A about organizing strippers in the midst of a pandemic during an uprising. In this episode, we discuss the lack of labor rights facing sex workers in the U.S., visions for a better future, misconceptions about the work, and some personal details about our guests. Okay, here we go. So hello, Antonia and A.M., how are you? Doing great. Wonderful, thank you. So thank you both for joining me on the podcast. Can you guys start by telling me what your connection is with the Black Sex Worker Collective? And then we can talk about your specific event. And Antonia, if you, you want to start. Sure. Um, thanks for having us, Brianne. Uh, so I'm Antonia Crane, and I'm the founder of Soldiers of Pole. We are a labor movement in California. And I met Aquinos from the Black Sex Worker Collective through my mentor, Lizzie Borden, who is an incredible feminist director. Um, did you see Born in Flames? I have not, but I will check that out. It's amazing. And she also um, has a sex worker film that's very 80s and very funny, um, but it's Working Girls. It's not the Melanie Griffith one. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so my um, mentor, Lizzie Borden, um, she contacted me and said, oh, hey, you know, you should meet Akinos from Black Sex Worker Collective. She's a, an escort and she's incredible and she's an amazing person. And Lizzie Borden has an anthology coming out about sex work and sex worker stories called Honey on a Razor. And she wanted me to interview Akinos. And so Akinos had planned to come to L.A. This is, um, I'm going to say it was last summer. And didn't have a place to stay. And um, so we were, you know, making calls through SWAP and different organizations and through just our little sex worker activist network. And I just decided to put her up. And so I actually spent about a week with her in my house and we got, we were able to get her groceries and put her up. And I interviewed her for two hours and I just got to know her and she's, Absolutely wonderful. Um, she, I ha was able to 
hire her to speak at my um, advanced essay class on the last day of class. I was, um, I love inserting sex work into academia. It's like a fetish of mine. (laughs) It did make people uncomfortable and I was delighted to watch (laughs) be super uncomfortable. I asked Aquinas to talk for like 20 minutes and she talked for like an hour. And I was just like ecstatic watching her make everybody so uncomfortable. Um, She wore like the, you know, the giant thigh high boots and like a tiny, tiny dress and talked about being a whore. And Akilas is like, she's just really disarming. She's very funny. She's very smart. And she's also very opinionated. And I actually disagree with her sometimes. And I love that about her. I love that she just left field will come out with something that I was like, wow, I really don't agree with that, but I'm really excited by this right now. And so I loved like having her speak to my um, advanced essay class at UCLA and just watching the class just like turn red and not know what to do with her. It was like the highlight of my year. Um, and so that's how I met Akinos is she lived with me. And then she um, stayed in my house when I went to Paris um, on a date. So that's another story for another time. Um, and Am, can you tell us how, I mean, is your story similar to, or connected at all to Antonia's or you have a totally separate, how you met Aquino story? So I haven't met Aquino's yet. We've only just been emailing, um, actually just starting today. Um, so I'm really excited to get to know her and I've heard so much about her through Antonia. And so this will be my first introduction to her and my first introduction officially to the Black Sex Workers Collective. So um, I'm really excited for what's in store. Great. So to back up a bit, Anthony, you mentioned, you know, the We Are Soldiers of Pole, who are, you are both a part of and both organizers of? Yeah. I'm correct? Okay. And you mentioned it's a, you know, a, a labor movement. Can you just talk about more what your your mission is and how you you function and some more detail. You know, like a lot of things right now, Brianne, it's like evolving every minute. (laughs) But um, what happened was, you know, uh, the dynamics decision passed, which made independent contractors employees. And so that meant to me, the first thing I thought of was, oh, we can unionize again. And I was part of the lusty lady union effort in 1995 to 98. Um, And it was because we were employees that we were like able to sort of go through those motions and become um, a union, the first successful lasting stripper union in America and and the first uh, collective, the first strip club that was a collective that was a successful collective by successful. I mean, um, we were able to like get a contract and we were able to actually be self-owned. And so those, that's what I mean. I don't mean it in a, like other, other efforts have failed. I mean, it's all, you know, drops in a bucket of success. And I just want to be clear about that. Um, so our, um, you know, as a sex worker stripper for over 25 years, I've just seen conditions get worse and worse. And of course, right now is a really exciting moment in the world regarding discrimination, regarding, you know, the black sex worker collective event, which is who is allowed to make money you know, we want the decriminalization of sex work as our end game, but our our daily game is, you know, caring for our own and unionizing strip clubs and 
dispersing information to strippers about their rights as employees and how we can force um, employers to change. Um, and by change, I mean to stop extorting dancers, um, to stop assault, discrimination, racketeering, wage theft, and worse. Um, so we are trying to unionize strip clubs starting in California where we're employees again. Gotcha. So is your work um, like focused on California only or is this you know, ideally meant to become or be a, a national or an even global effort? Am you want to answer that? Yes, absolutely. Um, the yes, we want to expand outside of California, but we do have a focus on California because of the way that the legal system is set up now regarding employees versus independent contractors. That we're the only state where we're formally recognized as employees, so we just have an easier time here. But we're still talking to people in other parts of the country and. You know, we're having light conversations in Canada. So it's not out of the realm of possibilities to cross borders, but we are really trying to focus small and, and like, you know, because this could get really big, really fast. And we're still growing and learning how to, how to do all the things. I mean, that we're, what we're doing and, and what like the lusty lady dancers have done, like, no one had done that before in this industry and it's a very unique industry. So we're learning so much and we don't want to like blow up before we're ready. So we're really trying to focus here in California, but we do talk to people in other States and the ultimate goal is yes, to go nationwide and then to ally with other unions because there are other stripper unions forming in other parts of the world. And so, you know, so yeah, ideally strippers unionized, globally, not necessarily undersold as a pole, but just, you know, unionize is the main dream. Basically. Yeah. I mean, in East London strippers collective is doing really great work. Yeah. You know, the Pacific Northwest right now is doing some really great work and they are, um, you know, they're, they're a different state. They have a different landscape and they are independent contractors, but they are also striking, you know, New York is doing some interesting things. So um, there's a lot of good work being done and our focus during the pandemic really has been kind of amazing because it's been, of course, you know, um, solidarity with Black Lives Matter and um, BIPOC communities and also um, just coalition building with all of the strippers and all of the sex workers online. So it's been really exciting. Yeah. Can you tell me about what your part in the the fundraiser on the 22nd, the who can make money, who's allowed to make money? Sure. I'll start um, just because I've been sort of, um, we, you know, we've been protesting <laughs> many days in a row. So we're very behind with um, scheduling stuff. And thank God uh, AM is um, home and recovering and able to like help keep us on track because we're hopelessly disorganized without AM. <laughs> but um, basically um, I've been returning some emails with the keynotes and I signed up right away. And what we decided is we're going to do like a, um, we're going to do a pre-recorded show of some clips about organizing from the different lenses of all of our dancers and just talk about organizing and unionizing and, and the bigger picture of what this is and maybe even demonstrate our signature stripper move. Gotcha. And can and I'd like, of course, both of you to, to be a part of this. So I know you're, you're both strippers by trade and, you know, obviously have other things going on. Can you tell me you know, what is your experience like as a stripper? It's, um, 
I know from the information that you had sent me, both of you have been doing this for some time. So I imagine in that time, you know, as legislation changes and culture changes and this, that, and the other thing, I'm sure your experience has, has changed right along with that. Can you talk about what it's been like to, to have careers as strippers? Wow, that's like an hour conversation. It's actually reminiscent of what I wrote today. Uh, her question reminds me of what I sort of, you know, wrote to, to our group today, which was, you know, I've been dancing in Los Angeles mainly. I've danced in other states, but mostly in Los Angeles, California, since 2002. And the landscape here is dramatically different than um, now than it was in 2002. And um, that's one of the topics that I'm, I've been really passionate about because I've literally been on the ground here watching increased wage theft, increased uh, um, you know, exploitive tactics by uh, owners and managers, um, and just more dangerous situations for the sex workers here in Los Angeles, and then less and less money over time as well. I've been watching the decline of income for strippers as well. And that's just been a deterioration over the last 20 years just, and, and specifically LA from what I, because that's where I've lived. So I can't speak on other cities, but I've literally watched this like weird deterioration of our industry. Um, and I think I, what's happening now is so beautiful because I've been ready to fight. I've been wanting to fight since, for like 10 years ago. So, and Antonia has been fighting for like even longer than that. So it's, it's really heartwarming to see people, to see more strippers out on the streets with signs. It's really yeah, amazing. Totally. I mean, the um, same, like what uh, AM said of just like seeing the, um, seeing being, being a career stripper is something that um, is interesting uh, because people don't expect that, you know, they, they like to see stripping as a, Oh, you just strip for the weekend. And then like you go on with your, <laughs> and it's like, it's so demeaning and I've come across it with, you know, a lot of different kinds of people. Um, and I've, I've stripped in many, I've stripped in Vegas, New Orleans, Hawaii, and I've never really had a lot of luck stripping in LA. I tend to go outside the city limits um, I'm, I was spoon fed in San Francisco strip clubs where it was performance art in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a Mills college sex worker. So I went straight from like studying black feminist thought and post-structural feminist theory, like immediately to sex work. I was just like, Oh, fuck yeah. Um, <laughs> I went right to the clubs and, um, it was performance art and it was incredibly magical and beautiful. And it still is. Um, and, uh, but it's become corporatized by like a lot of other businesses, um, and particularly in a, um, insidious way, um, for, um, stripping because of a lot of reasons, basically stigma, whorephobia, sexism, and just the pimp mentality of, um, just the commodification of the female body and like the interest of men in controlling and, and extracting money from our bodies and what that means really in a, um, in labor, like what that actually looks like. Um, and what that means. So it's gotten horrible. I mean, I've had moments of magic and it's like, it's the best blue collar gig out there. I don't know if it is today. I haven't had, um, you know, AM, I don't, she won't brag about it. So I will, she was entertainer of the year for like one of the biggest strip clubs in the world. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, for Spearmint Rhino. Mm-hmm. And uh, so being a career stripper has um, given me great stories. I actually miss it. And, um, you know, it's been strange to not dance. I was asking AM yesterday, like, do you dream about dancing? And um, she was like, she's not remembering her dreams right now. But I, whenever I have a break from dancing, I dream about it constantly. Mm. And if we can talk a little bit, um, AM, I, I know that you're recovering from from surgery and from an accident. Can you talk about that if you'd like? Yeah, I love talking about it. Um, yeah, so I used to drive a motor scooter around the streets of LA like a genius. Um, a motor scooter is like a Vespa. And um, I it, in December of 2018, I got hit by a car who was turning um, in front of me. They didn't see me. Um, and, uh, they crushed my foot between the bumper of the car and the back of the scooter and it on impact crushed and amputated all five of my toes and the ball of my foot. And, um, so they, you know, cleaned all that up and tried to save my foot a year and a half later, the structure they created was breaking down and I opted for a below the knee amputation instead of opting for more foot surgery because another surgery might not have worked. Um, And then I would have been back where I was again. So yeah, I just today, we're all very lucky here because today is the first day where I'm like walking around my house, eating food, wearing clothes, wearing makeup. Um, For the last month, I've been on drugs and then detoxing and then just bedridden for a month. Yeah. And I, you know, the reason I love telling my story is because I was at the height of my career when I had this accident. I was making more money than I ever had because I had finally, finally created a system for myself. And I started teaching it to other dancers, how to save your money, how to pay your taxes, how to save for retirement. Um, and so, you know, I was on top of the world. It was the best time of my life, I was saying at the time. and But I was also ready for a transition, whatever. So car hits me. I lose my job. I have no benefits. I have no unemployment because I'm not uh, an employee. I have no disability because I'm not an employee. I have nothing now. After 18 years of stripping, I walk away with nothing. And even my boss at the time, who I'd worked for for 11 years, sent me an empty Christmas card to my hospital bed. (sighs) So, you know, and I, yeah, uh, so it's, you know, and I called the disability office. I was like, hey, I pay my taxes. I applied. Where's my where's my stuff? You know, and they were like, you don't get disability unless you actively pay into those programs. So if you're an independent contractor or someone who's self-employed, you have to enroll yourself in disability insurance plans and pay for it yourself in order to have access to that. Yeah. Which is a huge thing. I mean, because, yeah, as you were talking about that, I'm like, this is like so proving the the point about the necessity for movements like yours of, you know, exactly these instances. Like, what do you do now that you don't have, excuse me, the access to this coverage? You don't have uh, the benefits, like you said. And, you know, now you're just like hanging out in the wind. Um, Yeah. yeah, What I do is fine. I landed on my feet. I have a, a huge family. I come from a very comfortable place. I'm concerned about everybody else. Yeah. I'm very fortunate. 
not everybody else is. Yeah. I mean, and that's why we've been doing so many fundraisers. I don't know if you've noticed Soldiers of Pole, but AM started a fundraiser um, when COVID first shut down the clubs without any warning and people found themselves without a job and without any access to unemployment or even a lot of uh, undocumented workers didn't you know, get a stimulus check or anything like that. Um, and so AM danced for a week for um, a select few dancers that are anonymous. I don't even know who those dancers are. And it worked so well that we decided to do it for the whole month of April and um, create April showers for uh, undocumented dancers and dancers who were in acute financial hardship because of COVID and, and misclassification. Because even though we're employees now, it doesn't mean that it's being implemented in the right way or the legal fair way. Um, in fact, it has made uh, employers have decided to figure out new ways to extort dancers and make us pay our own wages. So it's absolutely wage theft. Um, so another reason to kind of unionize quickly uh, is because of how they have implemented AB5 in this really destructive and illegal way. Can you guys talk about um, more about the wage theft that you mentioned? Because I've done some interviews with other strippers, but they happen to be in other countries around the world and, and it's different everywhere you go. So can you talk about like what the policies are in the club and, and the other ways that you're just being undermined? It's not a sexy story, right? <laughs> but <laughs> we'll tell you. Yeah, please. Um. Do you want to go AM or you want me yeah, to? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the easiest way to answer it to start off with is everywhere you go, it's different. And even club to club, city to city, it's different. They have their own weird loop around rules that they've created to continue benefiting um, as they had been in the past. Um, so there's like a whole list of ways that they steal. Um, the number one way is um, house fees, pa- making workers pay to work. Yeah, literally there's clubs where you can't even walk in the door without paying like at least, it's 100 to $180. And I was on the, on the ground in San Francisco working when this um, extortion model of business started happening because it wasn't really happening before. I think they charged this, and this is all illegal, like a locker fee. What is that? It's not a gym. Um, <laughs> but it's basically strip clubs have managed to skirt the law and it's a launder money launder a money laundering business, or it's just a business that's run by people who are um, trying to skirt the law and exploit a vulnerable workforce, which is an entirely femme workforce for the most part. And uh, they've managed to get away with it for like 30 years, um, 26 years. As I mean, that's the only, I've been working for over 25, and so I watched this happen. I watched the them try to charge us money in the for four hours and then six hours then if you work a double you pay double stage fee and so when you hear um they call it different things in different clubs and that's because of the class action lawsuits Mm -hmm. because dancers always win the class action lawsuits uh and these have to do with um this issue of wage theft and back wages so um they as soon as they um, are taken to court, like let's say Rick's Cabaret, which is a corporation, which I've worked at, there's one in New Orleans, there's one in New York. They have a huge lawsuit. And let's say they pay out like a few million dollars in a lawsuit. Then they will call the 
the title of the extortion title something different. It was a house fee. Now it's just called tip out or then it's called, they just changed the title and they're very hush hush about it. But regardless, um, when AB5, I mean, I think um, it's important to sort of like for someone who knows nothing about stripping, know that this has like been an issue for a very long time. But when AB5 passed, um, going to a strip club, you'll hear somebody say when they hire you, like, oh, you have to make your wages. And they, they that means exactly what it sounds like is they're making you pay your own minimum wage. Right. Um, and it's, you know. It's been something that has gotten worse and worse over time. And the the fees that the club charges you, I, I mean, I'm assuming they also are requiring you to, to give them a cut of your tips at the end of the night on top of that, or yeah. am I incorrect about that? No, you're right. Yeah. Did you, I, I just feel like bringing this up because I, I just learned this last week and I was astonished, but um, apparently in the EU, because, you know, the so much of euros are, are coins that in strip clubs, they require the patrons who come in to exchange their actual money for fake paper money. Yeah. So the strippers then are required, like they, they can't hold any of it. They have to show like, this is what I've gotten in this fake money and then exchange it like you would in a casino. I've heard stuff like that. They, they're doing stuff like that here. They too. do tokens. Yeah. Here. That's also a way to skirt around the law regarding tipping. And it has to do with that. It's illegal to, um, touch a person's tips and extort a person's tips and, and that mandatory tipping is illegal. So because people know that they've placed a middleman there and that middleman is a token, a person, a machine, a bouncer. And that's another way to um, get around. That's they're just enabling themselves to steal strippers tips. Yeah. Yeah. So incredible. Shady. I mean, I could list off for you all the ways that they wage theft and they, and it's like horrendous when you hear it. It's, and this is, this is all towards one dancer. This could happen to you in one shift house fee, late fee. Um, Oh, and you missed a shift last week. So you owe for that too. You didn't sell enough drinks on your shift today. So you owe for that percentage of all of your dances and mandatory tip out. That's incredible. Yeah. It's, sickening um yeah yeah so well i do have a personal question for you am so i mean you said you feel like your career is over but having had the amputation and you know being in the position that you're in that you do have some support to lean on do you envision yourself starting again but with a prosthetic i definitely want to dance again in a prosthetic whether or not i'll go back to the strip clubs is you know <laughs> I'd rather open my own. Um, I love dancing, but I, there's no way I could set foot in a club in Los Angeles. There's not a single club worthy of having my presence in it um, or any of ours, quite frankly. Um, mm-hmm. But knowing all of the things that I know, I could not work at a club um, right now. So no, I don't see myself going back to the club, so I do see myself owning them. Yeah. Well, yeah. You, that, you brought up a great point because that was another question I was going to have is that part of your vision with the soldiers of pole movement to, to start these independent clubs and um, is that already happening? Not necessarily with you, but I mean, do you know of other dancers that have organized to do that or other more um, 
dancer-friendly organizations that are, are looking to do these more ethical and independent clubs? I think that there's chatter. Um, I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that there's chatter that sex workers are ready to own these businesses and take these clubs over themselves. Um, you know, and this has been a dream of mine also for several years and a dream of, um, some other dear friends of mine as well. So there, there's movement there. It, it is and will be happening. Um, but it's just slow moving, you know, um, with coronavirus and then with the protests, like, everything just feels like it's at a full stop kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And can you guys both describe to me what your ideal vision of a club would be, you know, like that is sex worker owned and run, like, what does it look like? Who, who are the performers? Who's the clientele? What is the practice? These are questions that were not on our list. I totally, I, Antonia, can I take this one? Cause I know the answer. Oh, I know the answer. I'm just calling Brienne out on like she's giving like the dream interview right now, and it's not about sex. But okay, <laughs> um, female owned, um, sex worker owned, um, union, a union uh, workforce, unionized workforce. Um, uh, their employees, they have benefits, they have hourly, they have their tips, they have their dance money, they keep all of it. Um, they, ha- they have their benefits, you know, uh, very eclectic, diverse, trans, um, uh, male, certain male events, male nights, um, you know, ma- exotic male dancers, um, very like my, my particular fantasy is costumes and stories on stage and kind of like what Antonia was talking about, you know, just exactly performance art. Yeah. But like sexual boner, boner, you know, boner fied performance art. Yeah. Yeah. Like make you. Yeah. And like more inclusive. Um, We need a discrimination policy. That's a, we draw a hard line at that. All dancers want different things. So you know, there was a, there's a group that we talked to who really want maternity leave and that's like their top thing. And we definitely need a sexual harassment policy. We definitely need a policy that respects and protects undocumented work, uh, dancers. Um, and so, I mean, these are things that are like basic things that, um, most workers don't even think about, um, because it would, it would never be a question. Um, you'd be kind of amazed. So, um, yeah, I mean, we need to own the means of production and we need unionized clubs where dancers have protections and things that they want and they get to keep their tips and there's no question about that. Well, I thank you for describing these visions and they, they sound amazing. And, and well, there are two points that I want to make. Um, one, I, I would challenge you that I do think that even though we're talking about, um, like kind of labor specific things. I, I do think this conversation is still about sex. Um, and of course, we're, we're definitely going to go more into the, the meaty part of that. But a, a thing that's come up that I know is not spoken about, um, like even not talking about sex work or stripping, but the idea of, you know, the fear of menstruation and like the taboo of it. Um, are there any thoughts to addressing that in any way with these, these clubs? Because I, I know 
you know, strippers, like, God forbid anybody can see that you're menstruating when you're menstruating and there's a tampon string or, or whatever. And I was just wondering, and this may be totally off the wall and you correct me, I'm being too crazy with this, but like a free bleeding dancer, is that something that, that would ever be worth pursuing or is that just kind of a crazy notion? You mean like to bleed on stage visibly? Yeah. Like to, to, you know, like it for not to be an issue, like, yes, that's going very far in a certain direction, but I'm saying like normalizing it in that maybe it doesn't matter if someone's tampon is showing, but going so far to the point where like, what if we do have a bleeding dancer on stage? I don't know. I'm just kind of mm. brainstorming. I've never thought about that. Um, it's kind of like a, um, I think that like having a tampon in, is um, could be fetishized in the same way that having a butt plug in could be fetishized, but um, it's not something that I really have seen. Um, and I think that dancers are very protective of one another in general, and um, that it's. I don't think that there's any shame amongst dancers about bleeding or having a tampon. I think that we kind of look out for each other. It's not something that's considered like gross or anything like that. But by the clientele, though, I mean, that, that's the impression I've gotten with speaking with other dancers and other women is that it's, it's not that they have a problem with it or the other dancers do, but it's that, God forbid, anybody who's in the club and, and paying and tipping that they see it. It's about protecting their experience. I've not had that experience in 18 years where it's like this huge big deal. Me neither. I've had my tampon string out more than once by accident. And it's not like... It's no thing. It's just, you know, that's what we do. We wear them. (laughs) I'm a woman and I wear these things and I'm also a woman and I'm taking my clothes off for you. So, uh, you know, I personally don't want to dance on a stage with blood on it. That's not mine. You know, for sanitary and health reasons and only for those reasons. Um, I dance in stripper sweat in all of their stripper sweat and I'm happy to dance in their sweat. And I would prefer not to dance in their blood, but that's also why there's stage cleaners. And so there's support for us. That's why we have their staff that's supposed to, you know, or, or even each other that we just, if you bleed, you just clean it up. A better question would be, um, how do you go into a strip club when you haven't showered? Your hands are dirty. Your breath is disgusting. It smells like eggs and dog shit. How do you fucking come into a strip club smelling like dog shit and get a beautiful, naked woman to give you attention and feel great about it. It's just like, that's a better question. And that's, that's the experience that I've had as a career stripper is these guys come in, they smell disgusting. They smell like BO they have, they're dirty and um, their breath is disgusting and, or they have so much cologne that it gives you a migraine. Like, how about that question? Like, how do we put up with that? you know, it's hard and you have to put on your game face and perform because it's a performance. Um, I don't think there's a lot of conversation around like menstruation. Um, I haven't really heard anything about that. Well, it's not that I thought that it was a a big time. It was just something I I thought of and I admit it was kind of an off the wall (laughs) tangent. So thank you for entertaining that. Um, But yeah, you you brought brought up a great point about, about that, about the lack of control over, you know, like the people that are getting the luxury of witnessing you guys and how 
you know, you're doing the work, but you're also like responsible for so much and none of the burden, none of the work or responsibility is on the the patrons, the people that are, are in the club and creating this environment for you. Um, can you, do you want to talk more about that more about like the cons of the work? Um, and I'd also love to hear like kind of your favorite aspects of being a performer as well. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the cons of our work is that is part of that conversation that we just had right now, which is I can't be a woman without you thinking there's something wrong with me. Yep. Um, I can't gain five pounds without you mentioning it to me. I can't do anything with my look, with my body, without you telling me what you think and what you think I should do. Um, that, that can be pretty horrendous at times. You're fat, you're too skinny, you're ugly, all kinds of shit. Yeah, the critique, the constant critique. Men always have something to say about women's bodies. And other women who, other female patrons, they'll do the same. They'll do the same at times. You know, it's, it's the nature of the job. We're on display. And so similar to art, you go to a museum, you look at art and you talk about it. It's similarly, we're on display, but then it's when they, they speak to our face. It's when you talk to me as an object, you treat me like an object to my face. And I'm not just dancing for you now. I'm speaking to you person to person. Then there's like some, they can't click that I'm still the same person. Does that make yeah. sense? It's yeah. like, oh, that's the girl that was dancing on stage. And now we're going to tell her to her face all the things we think about her and not even consider her feelings, her thoughts, or <laughs> anything else. Um, and, and it's dehumanizing. And that is, um, can be difficult to work through mentally, especially when you're a young stripper and you're just figuring all of these things out and nobody's teaching you about how to mentally overcome these things. Um, and so I also think that there's a lack of training in our industry. Um, and the, the great things about it are the, the freedom to live your life by your own, by your own terms and, um, and to freely and fully ex and sexually express yourself without giving a shit about what anyone else thinks of you. I mean, it's so liberating. Yeah. I think a great thing about dancing is of course the money and the empathy, um, which means, you know, these things aside and people criticizing us aside because we're on display and because of misogyny and horophobia and discrimination. Um, as soon as you know, another person's story, like it creates empathy in the world and, I think people go to strippers and sex workers because they need empathy and touch and tenderness and someone to listen and human experiences. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, the joy is sort of like the money and the human contact and being able to perform is really liberating and, and sexual power, which is incredibly intoxicating. Are these some of the reasons why you guys started down this road? Can you tell me what, like, how did you get started with sex work or stripping? Um, what was the draw? Did it, you know, happen in an unplanned way? Can just describe your journey into it. Sure. It's not really, I'm not a super fan of the Genesis question because it's sort of like, 
do you ask a coal miner or a lawyer, like, how did you become a coal miner? Like, how did you become <laughs> a garment worker? Like, why did, how did you become a teacher? How did you become a secretary? Um, I think that I became a stripper because of capitalism, because it's very hard to find a way to make money that's worth my time and energy. And it's always been a way to make a lot of money in a short period of time to support my other interests, which are generally art and creating things, uh, writing and, and art. So, um, yeah, the reason why women end up doing sex work is generally because of acute financial need and a lack of opportunity. And AM? Yeah, well, I wanted to be a stripper since I was about 15. And it was purely for the glamour. Because I didn't know what it was. All I knew is they get to wear diamonds. To to give you some context. um, (laughs) When I was five years old, I sent a letter to Santa Claus. And I asked for red shoes, a red dress, red leather pants, a diamond necklace, diamond earrings. And like all I wanted was red stuff and diamonds. I was five years old. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. So there's just a gene in me. I don't know. Uh, I had no clue what sex work really was or what stripping really was until I did it. And I didn't actually start stripping until, like Antonia said, I was counting nickels and dimes by dinner at Taco Bell when I was 21. Yeah. So it's a great job, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So even with the the economic, um, like the wage stuff that you were talking about, you know, the, the disparity that's there, if we think about at all in comparison to, you know, women working in, in a corporate field and facing wage gaps in pay there, do you feel like even with all of the the stealing that's happening in your industry that you're still kind of coming out on top? I mean, cause it sounds like it, the way you're, you're both and every sex worker I've ever spoken to, they always talk about it's the financial thing. It's like being able to, you, you know, like own this access to making money. Um, but I, you know, it, like in hearing all of the, the troubles and the, you know, the, the restrictive policies and all of these things. I'm just wondering, does it really, do you really come out on top in the end or do you feel like it's just like, you're just constantly fighting, fighting, fighting. Um, I feel like for the last 15 years of stripping, it's been a fight in the beginning. It was like bonkers. Great. Yeah. And it was shortly after nine 11 and apparently right before 9-11, it was even thrice as good. Um, and so it just tapered off. So it's just a different landscape now. I think who comes out on top is the owners and the managers. Yeah. Consistently. And Antonia? Antonia, rather? Um, so the question is who comes out on top or is it worth it or something? It, more is it worth it. I mean, and just thinking about like w- women are always getting the short end of the stick. Um, but I'm saying like from your perspective, doing the work that you're doing versus like facing like a more formal structured wage gap when you're actually part of the system that, that is counted for unemployment and benefits or whatever, like women are still getting shafted there. You're getting shafted where you are. Do you still feel like you're making more money than you would 
if you were to do it, another corporate job. I've never um, uh, done a real corporate job. Um, I've worked at an entertainment law firm for a couple of years um, and I hated it. So, I mean, I like to think of um, that life is a series of choices and there's no like black or white answer. It's a very, there's a lot of nuance and, you know, I put in my 10,000 hours of dancing and I'm really a great hustler. Like I'm a great dancer. I'm a great performer. Um, and so you get really good at something and you get used to it. And, um, I guess it's sort of like you have like every other job that anyone is good at. There's good days and there's bad days. Um, and I think that like every day I make a decision, like I'm going to have a great day no matter what. So my routine was that I would get up and go for a run and do some writing and engage my mind and read, um, the New York times or some, uh, some other essays so that I, no matter what happened at the club, I already had a fantastic day. So then I go to the club and I do my best and I show up and I'd be of service and I do my best. And I would do that in any job, whether I was cleaning up cum rags or working, um, in Washington as a politician or in a fancy corporate job, I would show up and do my best. And, um, so I don't know, like if being on top is even like something that is possible, I think what we need to do is tear the structure down and rebuild. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to teach dancers about their rights and get them to organize and get them empowered, help them feel empowered to change a system that has been ripping them off for years and exploiting them terribly. And, uh, and, you know, right now it's a really perilous landscape. And I think you can say that in a lot of the um, particularly blue-collar work, particularly tip industries, you know, we don't know what the restaurant industry even is going to look like <laughs> with the pandemic. So it's hard to sort of, like, make statements before we know what we're embarking in to yeah. the pandemic. is you know, if it ends, if clubs open up, so I think that we get to create it um, and we're trying to do that. We're trying to change it and create change that is going to benefit strippers for once instead of just benefit the corporate bosses, which is the same in, in almost every corporate owned business. It's like, where is the money going? You know, yeah. going in the pockets of like a very tiny fraction of people. Even in some of the smaller owned clubs too, they're still doing that. Yeah. Even, even in the mom and pop clubs, they're still practicing wage theft. And yep. um, yeah, they're, they're still practicing that. Corporations are not, they're all the same. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I agree. And, you know, like you're, you're proving the point of the necessity of this fundraiser and other efforts to raise money and awareness and like fight this fight, you know, that in the eyes of the government, in the eyes of the economy, that you're not being treated as the workers that you are, you're not being able to get the benefits of putting in the same effort and doing the same type of, of like fight for a living that, you know, other people that are formally recognized by the government are doing. Um, so I'm really glad that you're, you're sharing this and that people can actually hear it from the mouths of the people that are, are suffering at the hands of the policies that are in place. 
Um, so can you both tell me just a bit about how you grew up with sex? Were you products of families that were progressive about it or shameful? You know, every once in a while, we do, we do hear from somebody that they had the family that openly talked about sex and didn't shame it. Um, but more often than not, of course, the opposite is true. But what was your personal experience, like learning about sex and being introduced to it as a person? Do you want to go first, my love? Um, <laughs> well, mine's easy. I, I, yours is going to be more fun. <laughs> um, I was not talked about in my family. Um, and I went to private Catholic school for the first seven years. So um, there was just like a lot of silence around it and a lot of loneliness um, around it. And I had to figure things out for myself. Um, I think AM had like maybe a, a nicer, breezier family. I'm happy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Totally. Totally. My mom is the greatest. Um, you know, my, here's why my mom is great. She's willing to learn even from a child. Yeah. And I taught my mother a lot of things and sh- she'll be the first to admit it, but thank God my mother was willing to learn because she really nurtured, um, the way I wanted to express myself. You know, when I was 13, I said to her, uh, you know, it was Halloween, and I said, "Okay, I'm. I found your electric blue stockings in your drawer, so I'm. I'm going as a hooker for Halloween with my 11 year old boyfriend." And that's not to say that she didn't care. You know, we had conversations around birth control. I, I became sexually active uh, with my boyfriend at the time without talking to her, and she would come home and catch me in the room with the door locked and try to break it up. You know, but then. I just never let, I always did what I was going to do and, and just, she would just basically be like, okay, because I never was doing anything terribly dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't have a lot of conversations around it other than me saying, mom, this is what I'm doing. So either help me navigate or stop talking to me about it. (laughs) Right. So, yeah. Great to hear the the diversity and experiences. Can you talk about how your perception of your own sexuality, the experience of your own sexuality has changed? Like you you both grew up from these, you know, different introductions to sex and then you both wound up in similar careers. So given that, do you feel like you're more sexually um adventurous now than you were as being a sex worker? influenced your personal sexuality like are you more willing to try things or perhaps less willing um i I know that's a very broad open-ended question but interpret it as you will and and try if you can to just describe the the journey of your sexual experience over your life so sex work um it's interesting because they're really, they're very much two different things. Sex work and my sex life are, are really two very different things to me. So when you were saying, oh, well, this is about sex, it's actually not um, because sex work is a job and it's, it's sexual power, but it's different than my personal life. It's different than my sex life. So they talk to each other, but they're different. Um, and what I do for money is different than I do in my personal life. So um in terms of like did I think being a sex worker has been I mean it's really hard to kind of condense it but I would say that overall it has made me a a much more open and sensitive and attentive lover and a more caring human being and it's also um sex workers um are acutely aware and I think incredibly emotionally and physically like spatially intelligent 
And I almost, that's why I'm, I know I'm romanticizing sex workers, but bear with me. I just think it's sort of like, it's sort of like when, do you know anybody in your life that grew up with asthma and like yes. can't breathe and like it's, they have their inhaler all the time and like, it's like breath is a constant struggle. Well, those, then there's people who have grown up as dancers from like age three, four, and then they become, or like I became a stripper. So I have this like spatial awareness and I have this dancer mentality and I just am in my body differently and I experience the world differently and I move through the world differently. Um, I think AM might agree with me with this. Like it's just the way we move through the world. Just there's this spatial awareness and there's just like, we feel music differently and we feel sex kind of like we experience it kind of emanating from us differently. And I mean, I think that being a sex worker has definitely helped me value that about myself. And it has helped me um, fine tune that about myself, like an instrument. And it's also helped me use it in my personal life to receive and give pleasure. It has taught me like what's not pleasurable, what's just for work only. And it's actually been really helpful to have those separations. I think it's healthy to sort of toggle between like, I'm going to like, you know, allow this person to, I'm going to like put rubber bands around this person's dick and tie them up and, you know, call them names. And they come with their own rubber bands because they have these particular fetishes or whatever. Like I'm not into that, but I can do it and I can do it well. I can actually succeed at that and be excellent at it. Um, and be really in tune physically with that person so much so where I know when they're going to come. And like, it is like a kind of intelligence. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating. Like, I think that a lot of sex workers have it. Most probably do. Um, and it's sort of like moving through the world as a dancer and feeling your body and just like being in a sensual place with one's body. And uh, queerness came to me earlier than probably I even knew, um, I always, my mother, one great thing about my mother is that she always had really good girlfriends. Like they were very important to her and I didn't never had a sub, I didn't have a sibling who was always trying to kill me or fuck my boyfriend. So, um, my mother and I were close. She loved her friends and, um, it taught me to really prioritize my female friendships. And, um, I was very close to my female friends always and was realized I was bisexual by about age 16 when I was living in a foreign country and um, came home and realized, Oh God, I'm bisexual. And I've pretty much just embraced that about myself um, from age 16 on. So I guess that's the end of that. Yeah. um, I I think to piggyback off of what Antonia was saying, um, the reason why we also have, all this awareness and, and the, this extreme amount of empathy for others. And it's because we're just in a building for hours and hours and hours, day after day after day, talking to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people mm-hmm. um, as, as strippers specifically, I'm speaking of now, not necessarily one-on-one outside of the club sex work, but also sex workers, even outside of the club also are just constantly spending time with people. You're constantly talking to them, how they're feeling, what they're doing. You have to read their body and their energy and you just start to get really good at it. Just like you do with anything else. Like if you practice running, you get really good at running. If you practice talking to people and really trying to understand them so that you can help them 
and be of service to them and also make a lot of money, then, you know, you start to hone in on these skills, just like any other job or any other activity. Yeah. It's just practice. It gives us so much capacity for compassion and, and, um, and empathy, like, like Antonia was saying. Bam, are the two things really different for you? Like how you are in the club and then there's how you are sort of in bed or romantically with someone? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. Those two things are, are very different. I can recall. So I'm just really good at having sex. I love having sex and I don't think maybe because I don't, as a sex worker, I wasn't performing blowjobs, but I give really good blowjobs. So, and the last um, guy that I was sleeping with regularly called me a professional and I took it as a compliment. Mm. Yeah. And, but like, I don't practice blowjobs for work. I practice, I do it to people because I like to do it. And, um, and yeah, it's two totally different things for me. Yeah. Well, I have a friend, um, let me explain it in this way, Brianne. Um, a friend of mine who I've worked with in many clubs before, and we've lived together as roommates and stuff. Um, she does not like her boobs touched. She was just like, but she doesn't mind like her pussy touched, for example, or just on the outside, like in a strip club. We were working at a um, topless club and she was like, don't like, I don't do not touch my boobs. It makes me feel like I'm cheating on my boyfriend. Like I'm too sensitive. I can't, I'm just like, see that totally sums it up. Like everyone is different. Everyone is their own sexual galaxy. Mm-hmm. And there she is. She's a topless dancer holding a hard boundary because that's something that she needs to have only in her personal life of just like touch, touch on her breasts is something that she does not want strangers doing. She feels like it's a violation and, you know, but other, she has different boundaries. Like she would let somebody, I don't know, touch, pinch her ass or touch her ass or maybe caress her inner thigh or whatever. Like everyone is their own galaxy. Yeah. Yeah. I I do agree. And thank you so much for having this conversation. And and I just want to say, um, Antonia, you especially, I appreciate you making the distinction and the clarification about like why you felt like this conversation wasn't about sex, but about work. And to describe my side is that I'm trying to look at it from the point of view of, of sex is, is so multifaceted as a subject and as an experience as humans. And rather than always doing interviews with people who perhaps are the patrons at a club or perhaps the client for a sex worker, only hearing that side, it's so important to hear the side of the people who are engaged in this work and acknowledging it as work. And I I want to emphasize that I, I absolutely do see that. But I also just want to address, you know, like the reality of of being women and being sexual beings, um, you know, not even tied to gender, but just I think it's so important to hear that experience and hear how you you take this through your life and um, how it influences your your whole experience, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I appreciate you acknowledging that. And I think it's a super exciting conversation, like the one that goes into where is the place where our sex lives meet sex work? The two are, are very different and, and maybe they aren't for everyone, um, but you're interviewing us. So I really appreciate you doing this. It's important to amplify the voices of sex workers right now um, as a huge part of this uprising about discrimination and Black Lives Matter. We're all connected in the fight. So 
Thank you so much. Okay, so that's our episode for this week. I wish it could have been even longer. There's so much more to share about these two guests. Antonia mentioned a few times that she's a writer. She has, in fact, written a sex worker memoir called Spent. Uh, And also AM has a podcast of her own called Yes, a Stripper. So in the episode notes for today, I I do include links to both of their sites so you can find out more about these projects. Um, And of course, the Soldiers of Pole website is in there so you can find out more about their movement, read their manifesto, get resources about these issues, and even more importantly, details on the fundraiser on July 22nd. There is a link to the full roster of events as well as the specific event being hosted by Soldiers of Pole, which again is called Strippers Unite. So please check out the episode notes. Please buy tickets, and I will speak to you next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sex Communication. Please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like more information about the show, visit us online at sexcompod.com. That's S-E-X-C-O-M-P-O-D.com. If you'd like to be a part of the show, please email me at sexcompod at gmail.com. I am always looking for new sex audio and people to interview. It could be you.